Welcome to the Eat Scripture Podcast today. It is fantastic to have you here. This is Eric Robinson, and we are going to continue with looking very, very closely at Scripture like we like to do at Eat Scripture, but what we're not going to continue doing at this for this podcast is uh, going through Psalms. We'll be right back at it next time, but just so you know, uh, I am alone today. I am without my partner in crime. Gina will not uh, be joining us. We just couldn't get our schedules together this week. No big deal, really. Um, she's doing great stuff, and I'm doing as best I can, <laughs> but I'm going to do this minus her. Um, so I'm going to take you to a different place. We've been going through Psalms for a while, but we're going to take a, this particular little break and go over to Mark, which is really, I got to say, my favorite gospel. My favorite of the Gospels is Mark, (laughs) not just because it's the shortest, although it can be read the quickest, probably, of, uh, I'm sure, of all the Gospels. And yet, um, boy, the the use of words and the artistry, literary artistry that goes into Mark is just beyond my ability to explain. I don't know anybody who can explain it well. It is an amazing, amazing book. Now, it's been counted as one of the least or the least uh, well-written of the four Gospels, the one with, you know, the worst Greek and kind of the most difficult to piece together the the not as far as just not using words well and and not being a great writer that kind of thing but i gotta tell you i think that is very very far from the truth um the way that mark is written through the work of the holy spirit is just unreal um pretty much unbelievable how intricate it gets and how incredible it gets we're going to take a short look at that today by looking at the ending of mark and talking a little bit about how the ending works can't even cover all of that because it's just gets so uh well woven into the entirety of the book but it does end differently than anything else before I go any further, I'll just say that we do have a website, eatscripture.com. You're welcome to go there. Take a look at what we do a little bit closer. You'll get some insight about that, um, some basics of us, some resources that we would recommend. Um, I have a couple of books that I've written on there with particular emphasis on typology, although the second one also covers more than that, and that means Jesus throughout the scriptures, which is really our focus here. Um, That's what we do at Eat Scripture. We really want to open these scriptures up very carefully and methodically and just go through them slowly like we believe scripture so often the majority of the time needs to be waded through slowly. Just let God have your mind and your heart. And uh, if you don't understand it the first time, that's that's okay. That's even a good thing. You shouldn't be surprised that it's difficult to understand a book that was written by the, you know, essentially written by the God of the universe. He makes it very, very accessible to us and and uh, wonderfully understandable on one level. You can certainly get the basics on a first read-through. Oh, Jesus, he came to earth, he died for us. We can find ourselves caught up in him and make him the Lord of our life, and we can become his children, God's children through him, and have eternal life through him. That's the that is the foundational message, the core that we want everyone to understand and, and to really pour themselves into that. But that's really the beginning of the journey. 
And the journey requires time and effort. It requires us to be close to him. It requires us to stay in his word as a part of our part of our walk with him. And so we dive in and we let it speak to us and we open it up and we often don't understand the words that that it says. We're many times offended by the words that it says. We don't like it. It doesn't make us feel good. Uh, and, And because it exposes us, it exposes who we are as sinful people before him. But in that process, then letting him have all that, being willing to to go through that and just stay with it and stay with him that will wind up in some of the greatest fruit that you will ever find in your whole life. I believe the greatest fruit, you know, that you can find will be found in him and walking closely to him. And his word is a major, major piece of that puzzle. He's just done that, done it that way, made it so that we can walk in this and be close to him in that way. Now, let's go to Mark and take a look at this uh, ending of his, which is different than any other ending that we find in the Gospels. And some of you, many of you, uh, who've been Christians your whole life, you may not even have really looked close enough to notice how different the ending of Mark is than any other ending. Um, And the reason why it kind of escapes us is because we let our eyes just go past little things in our Bibles that we might otherwise notice or might not uh, at first understand so we just quickly you know move past them and uh, we can see how the chapters run so we get to the last chapter of Mark and what we see if we're looking closely if you have pretty much any Bible going out there although I don't think um, the King's King James Version uh, has something in it that marks this off but every Pretty much everything else that I know of or have looked at closely marks this off in some way. There is a break between chapter 16, verse 8 and chapter 16, verse 9. So in Mark, last chapter, right between 8 and 9, there's some kind of break there. And the ESV Bible, the English Standard Version, uh, which I'm looking at right now, has a a bracketed statement for us that simply says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16 9 through 20. Now that is everything that happens after Jesus has risen from the dead and people start seeing him and he's talking to them and and it's going on about you know different experiences that these different disciples are having as they're seeing him and then as he's uh, encouraging them to go and take the gospel into the world very Matthew-like description of what's happening as he's sending them off on their great commission etc. Our problem is that the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. What that means is what they're taking away from Mark is any post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. Now, by the end of chapter 16, verse 8, the women who've come to the tomb to anoint his body after his burial to, to really put some effort into it because that they didn't get to do before the Sabbaths uh, were occurring. They come into contact with this, quote, young man 
certainly seems angelic and i believe is angelic although it never gives us that term in mark it just tells us they come into contact with this young man and he tells them that jesus is risen and to go and tell the disciples and peter that they can he's gone to galilee before them and they can see him and they need to go find him you know go meet him just like he said and then they leave the tomb these ladies do it tells us in Mark 16, 8, the very last verse, that they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And that's the end of the story. That's the end of the story. That's crazy. That is a crazy ending to put on this story. You are the people who are hearing this story. They know the Jesus story. They've given their lives to the Jesus story. They already believe that Jesus is very much the one that they want to follow. And now they're hearing this, or at least most of them do, because this would have been written mainly for believers. And so now they hear this Jesus story and they're like, wait a second. I, I was told Jesus rose from the dead. I know he rose from the dead. I've even, you know, very much accepted him into my life. I mean, he's made contact with me in whatever kind of spiritual sense that that we have an understanding of that. He's transformed my life. The Holy Spirit is alive in me. I know that this has taken place. I'm confident of this. Why is this gospel, this story of Jesus's life, ending with just an announcement that he's been raised, but nothing happening? And then I've got a bunch of scared ladies running out, not saying anything. It seems like a terribly strange way to end this gospel. Well, let's remember that Mark's primary audience, originally what we have from ancient ancient tradition, is that Mark's original audience was primarily Romans, Roman Christians, the Roman church. Okay, the Roman church that was getting started in the first century, probably Mark's original audience. And so if that's true, then that's going to affect how he writes because he's writing in a way that will meet them where they are. And so we're, we have to consider that as we're considering why he would possibly be ending like this. Now, also then what we have to consider is that Mark is writing from a very, with a very Jewish style, from a very his growing up very Jewish understanding of how scripture is written, of how good writing is made. So he's using, of course, the literary techniques that he understands from his day and that he knows from his day. One of those major literary techniques that we can see in the Old Testament several different places is what's uh, called by David Dorsey and others a dirge pattern, a dirge pattern. The interesting thing about a dirge pattern and the thing that makes it a dirge pattern is that it's missing a final piece to its literary structure. The final piece of the structure, which the reader has come to expect, because as a Jewish reader, you know how to read things. You look for structure. You, you can see it. Chiasm or, or uh, parallelism of some kind. The way different blocks of material in a short section will play off of one another, sound like one another, and yet sound a little different from each other. These are the things you've come to expect as you're reading good writing, scripture writing, for sure. And something about God, for sure. 
And so here we are writing the most important story from God to people ever told. He's using basic Jewish literary structure and he gets down to this piece in the end and he uses, strangely enough, a dirge pattern, which are often used in very difficult or are used in very difficult circumstances hard to understand i mean difficult for people to go through very heart-wrenching circumstances uh dirge pattern is what is used in lamentations when it talks about the fall of jerusalem there's a major dirge pattern in job of course because we look at job and it just has so much angst so much heart-wrenching difficulty happening in Job, hard to explain. We get to the end and we're wondering what in the world's going on. It's actually a little before the end that the dirge pattern ends. The dirge pattern ends right before Elihu comes in. Maybe we can talk about that one day. But nevertheless, that's what we have. We have a missing piece there. When we should have a final speech from uh, Zophar in the end, because we have three friends of Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, each one of them gives three speeches, or that's what looks like is going to happen. Major bulk of the book taken up with that, and where I should have an obvious third speech from the last speaker, Zophar, I get nothing. There's nothing there. It just drops off. And that makes me, you know, now as a reader, I'm like, wait, what's happening? Why is this not complete? Okay, so now I'm I'm getting that same usage here. Because I get to the end and I'm wondering, why is Mark incomplete? There's supposed to be a great piece here at the end that's not here. So now I have to consider why in the world would he write like this? Why would he leave this trailed off without giving me a vision of the very thing I want, the very thing I've been reading this whole time for, which is Jesus raised from the dead? He doesn't give it to me. So I go into chapter, go back a little bit to chapter 15. And what I find is that right after Jesus has been sentenced and delivered to be crucified in 1515. That's the end of the previous literary structure. The new structure begins, the final structure of Mark begins in 1516. So in 1516 now I have this this talk about everything that happens at the crucifixion. Now, from this point on, Jesus handed him, handed to the guards. He's mocked. He's led away to be crucified. Then he's crucified. Then all that happens there with the, with his death and then the burial and then the lady showing up at the tomb. All of this after his actual sentencing becomes one block of material. And it's a block that forms a dirge pattern. So if I go to 1516 now, like I said, this starts my new piece here. My new piece of material begins right here. 1516. Soldiers lead him away, led him away inside the palace. That's the governor's headquarters, it says. And they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him in purple cloak, twisting together a crown of thorns and put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. The soldiers, who are the Praetorian Guard, the guard that's attached to Caesar and committed to to Caesar's defense, 
and that they are the ones who are mocking Jesus. So they're committed to the defense of what they would call the ruler of the world, the ruler of the known world, the king of the world, the one who should be Lord of Lords and King of Kings. That's who they're committed to. And here they are before Jesus dressing him up mockingly like a ruler and then giving mock praise to him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, spitting on him, kneeling down, giving homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. Oh, so the soldiers who are committed to defending the king of the world are now in front of the very true king of the world, king of all things, king of the universe. And they give tribute to him, but mockingly. They give homage to him, but only in the most mock way. And so this is this is really speaking to us. The ones that you would hope would come to the aid of the one who's in uh, the great leader, master, king, lord of all, the ones that you might even expect to, who have actually committed themselves to, don't. Don't come to his aid. Don't help him. Instead, they are among the worst of the, you know, um, betrayers or, or mockers. So that's my first piece. The ones who might, I might hope or expect to see or who have committed to uh, don't help. Then I go to verse 21 in chapter 15 still, just right into the very next spot. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, I'm going to find out that Rufus is mentioned in Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, verse 13, mentions Rufus. And it's interesting that Mark is the one who tells me that Simon of Cyrene is Rufus's dad, as if he expects his readers of his gospel to know who Alexander and Rufus are. And so then to have a Rufus mentioned in Rome, the very place that I'm told by ancient tradition is where Mark wrote to, this is very interesting. This is not a note brought up by Matthew or Luke, but Mark does. Mark brings it up. Okay, and the fact that Rufus is the one who, who actually uh, wants to, or I'm sorry, not Rufus, but Simon of Cyrene is the one who's brought into this, and he's an unknown. I've never heard of this man before. Never have I heard of this man before. And he's the one who winds up carrying this cross for Jesus. Where are his disciples? Where are the ones who said they'd never leave him? They're not here. The ones who committed to it are not here. And so he, at a complete unknown, winds up carrying Jesus' cross. Verse 22. I get to my next section. So it's only a one, just a little one verse he hands me there, but it's a person who I've never seen or heard of before who winds up helping Jesus at this point when the ones who I thought might be here and might commit to him don't. So verse 22 starts. They brought him to the place of Golgotha, which means place of the skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which, what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. 
And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the uh, Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe those who were crucified with him also, uh, and those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Okay, that's our next piece. This is our next piece here. And I have these people like chief priests and scribes and just people who are passing by and those who were crucified with him everybody's mocking him. Everybody's mocking him. I would expect even at least the surely the ones who are crucified with him wouldn't be mocking him, but they've taken up the taunt as well. And even though Luke tells me one of them's going to come around, Mark never does. Mark wants me to see that everybody who I thought would be on his side is not, or everybody who I'd hope. I would hope that the chief priests, frankly, and scribes would finally come around, see that this is really the Christ in front of them, and he matches up with the scriptures and but they don't. They don't. And just passers-by are willing to deride him uh, and, and call him names and mock him as they pass by. And then even the prisoners who are crucified with him. So my heart is hurting because everybody is against him. Everybody who I would hope would come to his side doesn't. Now the next piece. So what I've seen so far, people I expected or hoped might come to his aid don't. Then in verse 21, somebody I've never heard before comes to his, never heard of in the gospel before, never read his name before, don't know about a thing about him, comes to, is the one who comes to his aid. Even though enlisted to do so, he's the one who winds up carrying the cross, where I would have expected somebody who was true to him, uh, true to Jesus. But that's not what I get. I get somebody else. Verse 22 then, all the way through 33, talk to me about people again that I might hope would be the ones who understood him and would come around, but they don't. Verse 34, all the way through, uh, verse 34 through 39. And when the sixth hour had come, uh, let's see, and when the ninth hour Jesus had come, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come down, uh, come and take him down. And Jesus uttered with a loud cry and uh, breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the son of God. Oh my goodness, this is incredible because just like I just saw these ones that I would hope or would expect at least to show some compassion at this point, if not to realize that they're actually crucifying the son of God, don't do it in 22 through 33. Then in 34 through 39, I get Jesus uh, bringing up Psalm 22 which by the end of the psalm, he quotes the first line, I think without question he's pointing to the final part of the psalm, where we realize that he was never forsaken. He was never, Jesus knows this. He quotes the first line so that everybody could, everybody with an ear to hear would go and 
come to grips with the fact that, oh, this is a psalm about how the chosen of God was completely vindicated, was never left alone. God never left him alone. And then we see somebody run off and get sour wine, put it on a sponge and give it to him to drink. So they give him a drink in his time of desperation. Somebody who doesn't understand really a thing. I mean, doesn't even realize he's quoting Psalm 22. Thinks he must be talking about Elijah. But they, but they're here and they give him a drink. Somebody who I've never heard of before. Don't even have. It's just called a certain man in Scripture. That's all it is. And then, of all people, a centurion who's standing, like it says, facing him in the ESV, who stood facing him. That means he's right before him. That's what the Greek is saying there. He's right there. The centurion who's right there with him, who hears him say this at the end and die that sees him die this way, says, that's the Son of God. I would have expected a disciple to be here saying that. I would have expected somebody who was close to him to be the one here saying that. But it's not. It's a centurion of all people, the one who speaks up for him when nobody else that I would have thought would be here uh, are here. Then it's the centurion who speaks what needs to be said. I am totally shocked as a reader. This is amazing. So now I've had two pieces where somebody I would have thought or hoped would come to his aid but didn't. And then each one of those followed by totally unexpectedly somebody I've never heard before, heard of before, been able to know about anything about before, actually does what the disciples should themselves be doing. Carrying the cross on the one hand and proclaiming that he's the son of God on the other. Okay, then I start my next piece. And what I'm expecting, of course, is to see somebody who I thought would be there, hoped would be there, is not there doing what they should do. Verse 40 and 41. There were also women looking on from a distance. That's key, from a distance, because it goes in direct contrast to stood facing him in verse 39. What the centurion was right there, right in front of him. Verse 40. Women, though, are looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and Joseph and Salome, and when he was on when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, why aren't they ministering to him now? Why aren't they the ones who are running, getting the sponge and putting that up so, he, so that he can drink? They are standing noticeably in a different place from the centurion. They are at a distance where the centurion was right in front of him. I would have expected these women who've been ministering to him before, one particular uh, translation actually says who used to minister to him, and I think they get it right. That's the implication of what's happening here. I thought the women would be there right at his side, but they're not. None of the ones who've been close to him before are close to him now, helping him. They've all deserted him. He is the son of God, deserted um, in this greatest time of need. And so they're not there. Okay, that fits with my pattern again, perfectly. Then, of all things verse 42 through 47. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation that day, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling group who sentenced Jesus, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, it says, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, I don't think 
Joseph of Arimathea was probably at the council when they sentenced Jesus, he's become attached to Jesus. And he realizes that Jesus is on a cross now. All this happened early in the morning. He's, it's coming to everybody's attention now. And he wants to do Jesus, do right by Jesus. And he's willing to even go to Pilate and ask for the body. He took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, it says in 43. 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. They saw where he was laid, but they weren't participating in it. Okay, so Joseph of Arimathea, a council member, the very council that condemned Jesus, that wanted nothing but to get rid of Jesus. He's somebody who shows up and helps Jesus in this, uh, shows reverence to his body, shows reverence to him, takes his, gathers his courage just to go before Pilate and say, I want to bury this man. He is doing something amazing here in his willingness to show love for Jesus and show care for Jesus. And I have never heard of this man before. This is the first time this guy's ever been brought up. Who is this person coming out of the shadows, appearing now when the very ones I hoped would be here to care for his body and to lay him in the tomb are not here? But here he is doing it, doing this amazing thing. Okay, so then chapter 16. Now, if my pattern continues like it's gone all this way, I'm going to again see people who I would think would do the right thing. People who I would immediately think would be all about helping Jesus and being there for Jesus. They're not going to. So chapter 16, verse 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And, every, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. And it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid." This is crazy. It gets right to the end. They say nothing to anyone because they're afraid. End of gospel. End of gospel. Oh my goodness, what in the world is Mark doing ending here? Now, I know good and well from the other gospels that the women are going to get their voice and be able to go to the disciples and tell them what happened. I know that's going to happen. I've read the other gospels. I know how this works. But the fact is, that's not what Mark wants me to take in. Why in the world would Mark end his gospel right before Jesus comes in full glory, appears so that I can see him, gives me a story of him actually in his own self, 
appearing before his disciples or the women or somebody. But Mark doesn't do that. Mark has these ladies who I would expect to jump up, (laughs) run out, talk about what they've seen, tell the disciples, tell others, oh my goodness, Jesus really is alive. They don't do it. They don't do it. They are crippled with fear, as it were, um, completely muted by fear, and they are not going to say anything. So the very ones I would expect at the end of the gospel to be the ones who speak up, don't. Don't. So this perfectly completes my dirge pattern. Because, remember, I'm missing a final piece. What I want, my heart wants, as I finish a dirge pattern, is a final piece. And there's a very obvious missing piece. Which is what there is at the end of Mark. An extremely obvious missing piece. So, every time I've had people who I thought or hoped or have committed to, in the case of the soldiers, giving honor to the Son of God and being there for Him in any circumstance to do their very best by him don't they don't do it not in mark in mark each time that happens they're not there the ones who i would expect to be there for him are not but each other time in between interspersed or after each one of those times i have someone who i totally don't expect and who i've never heard of before in the gospel actually come and give honor and glory to God and speak well of Jesus. That's amazing. So first I have Simon of Cyrene. Then I will put particular emphasis on the centurion in the second time that happens. In verses, uh, basically verses 34 through 39. And then the third time that happens is in verse 42 through 47 where a council member, a Sanhedrin member, is the one who steps up and does the right thing. So three times, somebody totally unexpected that I've never heard of before steps up and does the right thing when he is those who are committed to him uh, and who have told him, promised him that they are committed to him, aren't there for him to help him. And then I get that final piece Uh, where the ones don't come to his aid who I thought or don't do the right thing, which is to go out and proclaim that he is risen. These ladies, who I would expect to, don't do it. End of dirge pattern. So now my mind is scrambling for, wait a second, I need a final piece. That's exactly where Mark wants to lead me. Mark wants me to come to this point and go, wait a second, if the pattern holds, that means I need somebody that I've never read of before in the gospel to step up and do the right thing, even though others are too afraid to do so. Well, who's the person that I've never read of before in the gospel who now is supposed to step up and proclaim that Jesus is actually risen from the dead? How can this gospel end well? Who should be in this spot? It's you. It's me. I'm the reader. I'm the one who gets to this point. I'm the one who's never mentioned in the gospel. But when those who are close to him have promised to don't step up, I'm the one who's supposed to step up. Guess what? I'm the one who's supposed to come and proclaim that Jesus is actually risen from the dead if nobody else will. 
I'm the one who completes the pattern. That's why the gospel is left hanging like it is. That's why he uses the Greek word gar at the end of the gospel, which would never be left to end anything. You don't end anything with that. It's like it's like the worst kind of ending with a preposition that you could do. Who would do that? It forces me to expect another piece, a piece that I don't have until I realize, oh, he means me. And if Mark is really writing to Roman Christians, Roman Christians who are who are in the midst of persecution right now, and they need to speak up about Jesus, this is a call to them. Hey, fill in the blank here. This is about you. You're the ones who need to step up and do the right thing. You're the ones who need to open your mouths right now and say that Jesus is actually risen from the dead. Even though you're afraid, even though you're trembling with fear, you're the ones who need to open your mouths. Wow, that is amazing. This is crazy amazing writing. This is fantastic writing, beautiful writing. We're supposed to glean from this. We're supposed to get this from this piece. And uh, and we are we are amazed at what we will see uh, if we will let the writing be what it is, which is from God to us, really helping us to understand what we're called to do as Jesus followers. Well, I really hope you're getting something out of that. I uh, hope you see something that maybe you haven't seen before. Read over it a few times of your own. Watch for all those little pieces, how they fall into place. But this is amazing. This is an amazingly well done piece of literature. Um, the Holy Spirit has put his stamp of approval on this, I must say, or just actually not just stamp of approval. He's put his pen to the paper and written us something that is just beyond belief. So I hope you get that from it too. It has been great to talk to you. Not nearly as fun as it is when I have my partner with me on this. So look forward to Gina being back next time. I look forward to talking to you more too. It's uh, great to have the podcast. Thank you for sharing it, for giving it to friends, for uh, letting others in on this. Hopefully this will be another podcast that you can do that with, kind of share it with someone you know, someone who's curious about the way scripture is written and why it's written like it is, and who probably never seen that the ending of Mark is actually as strange as it is, but uh, it will, this is the kind of thing that blows our minds, this is the kind of thing that gets us revved up, so enjoy your day, Uh, love you all, really appreciate you listening, and we will talk to you again in just a few days, God bless.